to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, welcome to King's Church. If it's your first time, good to have you. Uh, Welcome to Charleston crew, Nashville crew, and all the other people around the country. Thanks for joining and getting encouraged by God's word this morning. Uh, King's Church, we have this kind of phrase, we're not looking to build a big church, we're looking to build big Christians, that's the intention of our heart, and that's the plan, and uh, that plan is primarily manifest in two ways, the first way is adherence to the word of God as applied to every area of life and every sector of society, there is nowhere that the word of God does not touch, does not communicate to does not instruct the people of God about. So that's the true side, being built up in God's truth and his way. And then the second part of that is being spirit-filled Christians and spirit-led Christians. Um, We believe the doctrine of cessationism is a demonic doctrine and um, evil and strips the church of power and strength. And God wants his people to be filled with his truth and with his active spirit, that we would be his witnesses. And so one of the ways we do that is by leaning into both truth and spirit. Um, So my friend Ken is coming this week. Ken is a Princeton-educated, smart guy that walks in the things of the spirit. And it's a very challenging balance to be full of the spirit of God and to be really a truth warrior and to rightly be able to divide the word of God. Um, because truth actually kind of hems you in. It's uh, guardrails on the road of your life, and spirit stuff tends to be fluid, creative, uh, effusive. It tends to kind of overflow, and those things seem to be contradictory. I like the picture of altar and fire, that we have to have the altar as the foundation, the stone, the structure the hardness, the immobility of it. And there are truths in the lives of the Christian that must be immobile. (laughs) There's things that we believe because God says so, and we don't get to debate about those things. That's not allowed. Um, And then there has to be, on top of that structure, there has to be fluidity. The Pharisees were highly committed to the structure but they rejected the fluidity. And the Pharisees of our day, yes, there are Pharisees of our day, are highly committed to structure, but they reject um, the presence and life of God. And it's hard because if you get around super charismatic communities, they usually get wacky. And I'm talking about, like, every church I go to, there's, there's lion paintings everywhere, you know, as far as the eye can see. And, you know, I like lions. I think they're great. I'm sick and tired of paintings of lions, though. I'll tell you that much. The the, the joke is simply that, like, people just do whatever they want, and there's no more structure of God's way or order, and it just gets really weird. actually gets rebellious. And the scripture says the spirit of rebellion is as of witchcraft. And there's people that want to be... Rebellion is always about self-empowerment. And that's why rebellious people tend to gravitate towards charismatic stuff because they want to be self-empowered. But really, the empowerment of this Holy Spirit is for other. 
It's that we would be testimonies of God's goodness in the world around us, that we could lay hands on the sick and they would actually get healed, like we actually serve a God that actually exists and he's actually real. What a, what a novel idea. And so this week, Ken is going to be here. Is that Thursday night? Thursday night, 7.30? Thursday night, 7.30, right here. You can just wait here if you want. If you're jobless, just wait right here. No, don't do that. Um, please come back Thursday night and come with hungry hearts and expectant hearts for God to do something inside of you. Um, the hungry get filled. The, the, the skeptic doesn't get filled. And so you can be skeptic about, skeptical about things. I'm skeptical about a lot, lot of things, a lot of things, um, evil generally, but, um, I have faith for God to do miraculous stuff. And faith and skepticism don't really hang well together. It's hard to have a heart of faith and be a skeptic at the, uh, at the same time. That's why we have a church. That's why we have leadership. That's why we have pastors. For them to say, hey, I vet this guy. He's a smart guy. He's got it together. And he's not going to say, you know, if you give me... This is a true story. Uh, a friend of mine was ministering in the Ukraine. And this is five years ago, and this healing ministry came up, and the guy was like, if you give $50 in the offering right now, the Lord will heal you, and if you don't, he may curse you, and you may die, and um, I mean, I wanted to fly to that guy's house and beat him down so hard when I heard about that. I was looking at tickets to fly to his house to to physically assault him, Um, because on the one hand, it's evil, and on the other hand, it shames the spirit of God. It's, it shames what God wants to do. Um, and so anyway, Ken this week, he's not a shameful guy. He's a very nice, boring man that casts demons out of people. What a combo. Okay, <laughs> that's that plug. All right, here we are. We're still in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel. Is, this the cha- is that the correct chapter, gang? Yeah, chapter 11. I didn't want to rush through this. I've kind of been going quickly through some of the chapters. But I, I, the thing about expositional preaching is sometimes you can, get, you can get into the weeds in a good way and really focus on some of the things that we often overlook. When we're talking about the life of David and Bathsheba or the life of David and this Bathsheba incident, the, the great sin of his life... Uh, oftentimes we, we can speed through it or just focus primarily on David. I want you to notice something in this story, and that something is this is the hinge whereupon David's life gets awful. Like David's been slaying giants, standing relatively righteously before the Lord. Before this, winning lots of wars, bringing the Ark of the Covenant in, And essentially, at this hinge point, his life gets relatively tragic. You know, very soon, babies are going to die. Absalom is going to rise up. Division in the kingdom. Chaos is going to break out. He's going to spend the rest of his life trying to subdue the chaos that he has created by sin in his life. And Christians live in chaos because of sin, and they blame it on the devil. Christians live in depression and suicide and sickness 
because of sin and they blame it on the devil. And David opens the door right here, wide open, committing adultery and slaying a righteous man of God. And, you know, in the book of Kings, actually, it says, like, David was a phenomenal man, righteous, amazing guy, except for that horrific act he did with Bathsheba and Uriah. And it marks him. So we said last week, and if you didn't get a chance, uh, please listen. We said that first David looks at sin, and we said that's not sinful. The look is not sinful. That initial temptation is not sin, right? It's really, really important. Because if, if, the, if you get tricked on that, you know, then you start getting guilty and condemned for being a human. And that's not how it goes, okay? But then he inquires... And then he says, just go check this thing out for me. I just want to like slide into the DMs of this situation. I'm not sinning yet. I'm just inquiring. And when he starts inquiring, then it starts going downhill fast. It's like slippery slope. He cannot press the eject button. And then after he inquires, he expressly acts. And even when he inquires... Uh, the response back from the inquiry, he, his servants are like, yeah, uh, we all know this is the wife of Uriah. And it reminds me of like when we're about to, to, to sin, when the Holy Spirit gives us like that check in our gut. Have you ever felt that before? That check from the Holy Spirit that says, do not do this. Do not go here. Do not engage in this relationship. You know, do not go to this bar. Do not even go out tonight. And we feel that check and we're like, eh, it's probably nothing. It's probably not God trying to stop chaos from entering in my life on a massive scale. Probably not. Nah. Then he acts. And once he acts, sin gives birth to death. It is a concomitant necessity. These things are necessarily joined Sin gives birth to death. And that's what happens. And so, you know, why are we talking about sin, David? Well, because we don't want to do it. Because there's this one sense that we're, you know, if any man says without sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. And there's this kind of state of nature, right? The Hobbesian kind of view of the world and sin is, is in us. We get it. The virus is sin spread throughout the world. But then there's this living for Christ and as we live for Christ, we pursue sanctification. And we don't want to walk in sin because it brings the wrath of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 6. Put to death, therefore, the components of your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. So Paul is talking to Christians, yes, <laughs> and he's telling them to intentionally put these things to death. And then in verse 7 he says, when you lived among the people of the world, you used to walk in these ways, but you no longer do. So he, he corrects and he encourages. Ephesians 5, 6, for this you can be sure 
no immoral, impure, or greedy, greedy person that is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Finally, Romans 1.8, the same exact thing. For the gospel reveals the righteousness of God that comes by faith from start to finish, just as it was written, the righteous shall live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. I love this this Ephesians chapter 5, Gabe. This is one I love. It says this. It says, let no one deceive you with empty words. It's like someone said, like it says this, for... This you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then he, and then he flips it. He says, like, I, want you to be sh- I want you to be clear here on this point. Let no one deceive you with empty words. What would the deception be? You make the statement converse, and then you realize what the deception is. This is the deception. You can be immoral, impure, and greedy, and still inherit the kingdom of God. That's the deception. Okay, so, uh, if we love God, then we don't, things that, we don't do things that cause the wrath of God to come. Um, why does the wrath of God come? You know, God is not Master Ugwe in the sky, like meditating with... Do anybody know who Master Ugwe is? A few of you? Others had a sad childhood? Master Ugwe is from the Kung Fu Panda. Uh, he's a turtle meditating out in the ether, and he's super nice all the time. But God, and God is, you know, super nice at times. Psalms all, the Psalms also says he arises with wrath every day. Um, so, you know, God is both incredibly kind and gentle, the shepherd of our souls, and also perfectly good and just and holy. And in order for God to be perfectly good, he must destroy sin. He must recompense unrighteousness either in this world or in the world to come. If not, he is not a perfect God. If he doesn't care about sin, he's imperfect. He does, and that's why he sent Jesus for us, to pay the penalty of our sin. Okay, so let's jump back into, there's a point to all this, and I want to say verse 6. Let's go right here. So David sent word to Joab. It says this, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. This is such an awkward conversation, I'm sure, you know? Like, David knows uh, he just slept with this guy's wife, and he's like, so, what's going on out there at the war? Like, what's, what's happening at war out there? Like, he's just come from the battlefield where he's protecting the lives of his soldiers, right, and his men, and fighting for the king, and he's just like, just hanging, just changing, just having bro time, talking about stuff. The word Uriah, his name means flame of Yah or flame of Yahweh, fire of God. Isn't that an incredible name? 
got to start naming some kids Uriah around here. <laughs> flame of God. Some versions or some people translate that to be light of God because flame puts off light, obviously. Especially in the context of an old world. Like right now we have these strange incandescent bulbs and we don't really get that there's like some kind of chemical burning or the electricity's burning this little whatever that thingy is up there. You can see that thing. Light comes from burning, right? And so Uriah's name means flame of God or burning one or bright one of God. Jesus, Revelation 1.12, John says this, then, I've, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded from the chest with a golden band. His head was like white, like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. Central to who Jesus is, Revealed in Revelation is the fire of God. There's fire in his very eyes, and his feet are like burnished bronze, purified or refined by a furnace, by fire in a furnace. This is what Uriah, his name is akin to the fire of God. I was thinking about the qualities of um, fire this morning, or last night as well when I was studying, because God represents himself as fire a bunch of times in the scriptures, uh, Exodus 24, 7, and at the sight of the glory of the Lord, it was like a devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 Therefore, since we are receiving an unshakable kingdom, let us be filled with gratitude, so worshiping God acceptably with reverence and with awe, for our God is a consuming fire. One of the primary qualities of fire is that it consumes things. We've talked about the symbolism between love and fire. Uh, it's all throughout the scripture. It's all throughout the world, really, really the literary emblems of love and fire. And love consumes things. Fire consumes things. We've said in sexuality, fire outside of the fireplace will destroy everybody. That's why we need bounds for sexuality. But fire is a consuming thing. And it's interesting to me that we as believers... We find our life in God, sometimes we come to Christ, or we, when we get our sins forgiven, and then we just are like, man, I just, I want to just live in kind of contentment and peace, and I still have a hunger on the inside of me. And I, I think we forget that we are consuming beings. 
We're actually made to consume things. God made us to, I don't want to say not be content because that's wrong because the scripture says, you know, contentment is something that we can take hold of, but we find contentment in consuming the right things. And the world is desperate for us to be consuming beings as well and be fixated on consuming the wrong things. Uriah, his name means fire of God. The fire of God, when it's inside of you, you want to do things. You want to consume, and God wants you to be a consuming being. If you're saying, David, I've come to Christ, but my life is unfulfilled, my question is, what are you consuming? Because God is an all-consuming fire. And when his life is inside of us, our desire is, should be to consume things of God. And this is the contrast between Uriah and David. David's called to go to war. In the time of the spring, when kings go to war, David's not doing what he's called to do. Instead of consuming the things God has for him, instead of being a fire on the battlefield, he's a fire on his own couch. And let me recommend not lighting a fire on your own couch. It leads to bad things. Fire consumes and God made us to be consuming people. Um, we, live in a, we live in a world that constantly offers us entertainment, uh, uh, relationships, whatever, food, drink, beverage, all of this kind of stuff to feed the consumptive nature that God put inside of us. And if we continue to eat and drink and live and party um, in that kind of fleshly way, we diminish the fire of God inside of us. The fire of God needs to be stoked on the inside of his people, and it's done so by righteous consumption. Fire of God is all-consuming. It consumes. It's the very nature of fire. Fire goes out when you don't feed it. Fire dies when you feed it only on Sunday. When you only throw a log in the fireplace on Sunday, and then you come back Thursday, and you're like, man, it's cold here. Wow, temptation is super hard for me on Thursday but I haven't put a log in the fireplace for four days. It's in the nature of the soul to consume things, and God made us to be consuming beings, that we would consume what he has for us, that the fire would stay active on the inside of us. Um, There's a thing in the Bible called strange fire, some people call it strange fire. I, I don't know that maybe it's a King James Version um, iteration of it. Leviticus 10, it says this, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. And they offered unauthorized, that's translated strange in some translations, they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And then... Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed Nadab and Abihu, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, 
and before all the people, I will be glorified. It's a very strange scripture for most Christians, especially how to contextualize it in our kind of modern time. So what had happened was Aaron was doing incense before the Lord. And there's only certain times that you're supposed to do incense. You have to use the special incense holder. And incense, if you know, you light some whatever, wood mixture, wood perfume mixture on fire. And the smoke goes up, it smells beautiful before the Lord. And it represents the presence of God. It, It represents our interacting with the presence of God. And Nadab and Abihu, they totally disregard the law of God that says, when you're supposed to offer incense, what kind you're supposed to do, what censor you're supposed to do. And they just say, we can just do it ourselves. And so they walk up with their own censors in their own way, and they decide, it doesn't matter what God says his way is. I'm just going to do it my way. And they try to interact with the fire of God according to their own way, and God kills them. I find that strange fire is primarily manifest when lawless people are interacting with the presence of God. Nadab and Abihu were lawless. They did not care about the law of God, yet they still wanted to interact with the presence of God. And as I just said earlier in our service about the charismatic movement that I am from, that I was birthed in, Many people want to interact with the presence of God, but they don't want anything to do with the law of God. And that's how you die. Fire is consuming, but fire also has order. And God gives us order as associated with it to protect him. So when I think about Uriah, I think about someone who's burning for God, who's consuming the right things, who's walking in the order of God. The other thing that we all know about fire um, is it's, pain, it's painful. And when Leon was a little boy, we had a fireplace in our house. And as a dad, you want to make sure your kid doesn't put his hand on the hot fireplace, right? And you're trying to figure out how to do that because you don't want your kid to have some kind of horrific burn on his hand. And I was listening to a message, and this pastor said he had this little boy that was very, very uh, uh, determined and he kept going up to the fire and almost touching it like the little boy was testing his dad, little, like two and a half year old, that's the age they're testing, well, from two to 22, (laughs) he's going to touch the fireplace and the dad said he grabbed the kid's hand and then he's like, you want to touch the fire? Ah!" And he started dragging his kid toward the fireplace. Scar parenting, we call that. The kid's like, no! And the kid never touched the fireplace. I never had to do that to Leon. He was a very obedient son. I just said, don't touch it. He's like, all right, I guess I shouldn't touch it. Thank you, Leon, for helping me not apply scar parenting in your life. But we know fire is painful. I I was singing this song... um, all-consuming fire, you're my heart desire, living flame of love, come baptize us. Anybody know that song? Living flame of love. Too high. (laughs) Fire is inherently painful. It's like Christians all day long are singing about the fire of God or touching the fire of God. It's painful. It hurts. (laughs) 
There is no interaction with fire that where I touch the fire or the fire consumes me, that there's not an element of pain that's associated with that. Revelation 3, 17 and 18, you say I am rich and I have grown wealthy and need nothing, but you do not realize that you are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. I counsel to you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may become rich. And Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, you've chosen the metric of wealth and success to prove your righteousness, your good standing with God, but you're a disaster area. I have some friends in the finance world that are, I call them barely Christians. I call them barely Christians. I don't know if they are. The Lord may not call them that. I do. Um, and they, wa- they walk around like they have life totally figured out. Like they're better than other people because they have more money. It happens to human beings. They're not bad guys. That's what happens to human beings. Well, they may be bad guys, but that's also what happens to human beings. When you have success, you generally feel like I must be doing everything right. No, maybe you just made, you got lucky on a trade. Maybe you're just in an industry where everybody gets rich when they do things halfway right. And that's another longer conversation. But that's not the metric for success. The metric for success in the kingdom of God is purity. And so Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, you think it's wealth and success, but you're naked and blind and poor and pitiable. Go through the fire. Go through the pain of purity. Walk through pain for the sake of purity that you would be refined. Fire is painful. We, um, let me read James chapter one. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you encounter great trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and allow perseverance to finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Consider it pure joy when you encounter trials because trials are like the fire, they purify you. I've been feeling strangely fulfilled that was funny Amy thank you for laughing no it was funny it was supposed to be funny I thank you for laughing we're on the same comedic wavelength pretty much at all times I think actually follow Amy on Instagram she's hilarious okay um, I've been f- feeling strangely fulfilled and when you're a young guy and you're chasing God and you're trying to hunt things down and you want to make sure you're pleasing to him and you're praying and you're like, we want the city to get saved. You can walk in a pretty deep sense of unfulfillment, right? Especially if you're like, God, revival all the time. I need revival to come. And then you, you know, you look at what Mayor Adams is doing and you're like, oh God, this is a... I've been feeling this really incredible sense of fulfillment over the last few weeks from the Lord, just like a really deep sense of contentment uh, in our season in life and our family and our church life. And I, Bethany and I were talking this week about two years ago, you know, our church was down to something like 30 people and um, it looked like it was all going to be over. 
and the church was asking me to speak out before that, when we were, before our church split. It wasn't really a split. That's not really the right way to say it. Before we had a, a mass exodus because the church was saying to me, Pastor, you have to speak on racism and you have to tell us that all white people are racist and all black people are oppressed. And I was like, I refuse to do that. But it wasn't that simple. It was like battling for weeks. I was like, just maybe I'll just avoid this. Maybe I could just like dodge the bullet. Maybe I could just like just talk about Jesus and loaves and fishes. Maybe I'll just do a sermon on loaves and fishes for the next 12 weeks. People will ignore what's happening nationally. The main thing where everyone else is talking about. I think the majority of pastors actually did that. I think the majority of pastors talked about loaves and fishes for 12 weeks. They're just like, it'll go away at some point. Uh, and, but the Lord pushed me, and I was pu- pushed by both the people, but I was primarily pushed by the Lord. Because how many people know that God's in control of the universe? We're on the same page on that one, right? Like massive judgment in America. We're just like, yeah, it's just another day. Just weird economy. Incredible judgment throughout the nation. You know, people dying in mass. Riots all over our streets. We're like, yeah, it's just election season. That's called the judgment of God because we're a nation in sin. Love slaying, the, the, shedding the blood of the innocent. We're, it's called the judgment of God. Read, read the book of Joel. It's really simple. The book of Joel is really simple. It's like when it's all really bad, this is basically what Joel says. You don't even have to read it. When it's all really bad, that's called the judgment of God. Fast and pray and repent and he will restore the land. Pretty, pretty awesome. Yes, McKenna. <laughs> And so we were like, I was thinking about, we were just facing, it's hard to live in New York City. Does anyone pay thousands of dollars a month for rent for like a closet, three kids? And you think the whole thing is going to go down and then you're just like, the promise is over, you failed the mission. And then all of a sudden God's like, nope, I meant you to be here. I knew you were going to stand up for righteousness. You did. I don't care what anyone says. And then the Lord just totally blessed us and blessed our church. And, you know, Charleston is going to launch this fall and we're praying for Nashville and what God might do in Nashville. And like, you know, our message, thousands of people are listening to us a month. God's like just blessing us. Our church is blessed. The people are blessed. Our finances are blessed. I excommunicated somebody in the spring. That was great. Like we just, our church, like purity has been amazing. You know what I'm saying? Like it's been awesome. It's been such a blessing from God. And I've come into this season this really at the end of the summer, I just feel this deep, bizarre sense of contentment and fulfillment from God. Like, stand up for what's right, go through the fire, let God burn the dross out of you, the pain. Maybe it's sexual impurity, you know, maybe it's addiction, whatever it is. Like, let God burn it out of you. And then there comes this, it's, the scripture calls it the peaceable fruit of righteousness, that a deep and beautiful contentment comes to you. And you're like, I'm immovable in my conviction. I, it's, I'm immovable. Because if I was like, if I, I did the calculation, I'm like, if I stand here, I die. And I was like, okay, this is Uriah. This is what he's, this is what he's doing. He's like, I don't care what the king has asked me to do. I don't care what, I've, what, you're, what you're trying to get me to do. I have to stand where God has positioned me and called me. 
I'm not going to take my guard down and lay with my wife when my brothers are on the battlefield dying. I'm immovable. I've been through the fire already. Samuel later, uh, the book of Samuel later calls Uriah one of David's mighty men um, who are these 30 super elite soldiers that just did the most killing. The thing that I've learned recently about great soldiers is they do this kind of mantra. They have to get in this headspace before they go into war. And before they go into war, they have to say, I'm probably going to die here. And that's great. So be it. Praise God. If I'm desperate to hold on to my life, then we all die. But if I live for the life of other, then I can be heroic. And so when I look at Uriah, I see someone with a burning heart for God. Someone that's consuming the things of God. Someone that's gone through the pain of standing for righteousness. Someone whose name means the light of God. And do you know what else his name is? Uriah the Hittite. Did you ever read the scripture and just like pass that part for my whole life? I just passed that part for my whole life until this weekend. Uriah the Hittite. The Hittites were the enemies of God. They were not God's people. They were not the people that were called and chosen and brought up in a Christian household and everything was perfect and nice and you have normal parents and the whole thing. Uriah's a Hittite. Uriah comes from the other side of the tracks. He's not a part of the nation of Israel. This man of God, that's this burning flame of Yahweh, that's what his name means. He's someone that's chosen from a different nation. The scholars say that Uriah was a convert to Judaism. They say we know that because you couldn't marry an Israelite unless you were a convert. Worship team, you can come up. Leviticus, excuse me, Deuteronomy 7 Verse 3 says, do not intermarry with them and do not give your daughters to the sons of the Canaanites, Hittites, Philistines, etc. And do not take their daughters for your sons. God is incredible because he can take people from the world people that are born into sin, that are born into bondage, that are born into sin, sickness, shame, wickedness, death, abuse by your parents, abandonment. It's irrelevant in God's economy where you came from. Uriah, the flame of God, the flame of Yahweh, the burning one of God began outside of the camp, began outside of the nation of Israel. 
Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Isaiah 65, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call my name, I said, here I am. Here I am. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, So for now on, we regard no one according to the flesh any longer. If anyone is in Christ, verse 17, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. I love Uriah because he represents us. He represents somebody that's apart from the nation of God that doesn't deserve to be called the flame of God. He's willing to go through the pain. He's willing to stand for truth. He's willing to be righteous in the face of temptation, not because he comes from some perfect place. He comes from these dark people and God changes him and makes all things new Uriah is a hero and you King's Church are called to be heroes to call to live consuming the right things being hungry in your hearts to burn for God go through the pain of purity and to stand independent of the outcome and then one day meet this Jesus whose eyes are a flame of fire whose feet is like burnished bronze who holds the seven stars in his hand ruling over all of the cosmos and he calls us his friend amen church righteousness. God, we thank you for your promise for your sons and daughters. And we thank you for the fire of God that burns impurity away, that makes us look like Jesus. God, I thank you that you've called each and every one of us to be the light of God. That we're a lamp that we're like a lampstand, like the fire of God would rest on our heads, just like Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came and made all of these people, the saints, carriers of the presence of God, burning ones. God, make us burning ones. Church, just put your hands out in front of you with me. God, I ask right now in Jesus' name for every person in this place, God. Turn up the heat inside of their heart, God. Make them people that that are hungry to consume the things of God. Give us hungry hearts, God. Make us like Uriah. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts 20.27 says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio and around the world so believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.